1957, an archaeological discovery was made that would change our understanding of the Viking world forever. Just to the north of the Viking Age capital of Denmark, Roskilde, within the long fjord that stretches out from the suburbs of modern-day Copenhagen to the Straits of Kattegat to the north, a group of sports divers came face to face with not one but five mostly intact longboats from that long-gone-by time, dating from a thousand years before. It took five long years for the necessary administration and organising to be fully carried out. But by 1962, a section of the channel was dammed and drained, revealing there, in the muddy waters, Denmark's early medieval past in all its glory. Surviving only because they were purposely sunk there by 11th century kings as a makeshift fortress against enemies from the sea. Viking ships had been found before this time, and have been found since, in Scandinavia, France, Scotland and the Irish Sea, along with related types in England, Germany, the Netherlands and all over the shores of the Baltic. But these were mostly ship burials, sometimes elaborately constructed ceremonial craft, rather than conventional vessels used for day-to-day -day tasks. The boats found at Skoldelev, still being analysed and reconstructed today, were never meant to be discovered, surviving through a mere accident of history, and thus giving us a unique insight into the realities of the Viking world. Literacy was rare during those murky centuries, so much so that that time is often referred to as the Dark Ages. And it wasn't until at least a century after its close that chroniclers such as Saxo Grammaticus in Denmark and Snorri Sturluson in Iceland began to write down the tales and oral traditions long told by their ancestors. These sagas talked of great heroes, of unspeakable villains, of epic journeys beyond the edge of the known world, and huge, magnificent vessels fit for kings, manned by hundreds of warriors, known as dragon ships. One of the boats found at Skoldelev, a large war vessel, gave researchers their first real hint of the dragon boats spoken of in the saga tradition, previously thought to be little more than later embellishment by medieval writers harking back to the time before. At nearly 30 metres in length, this is an impressive craft, though not quite a dragon, as defined by the sagas anyway. A fleet of ships like this, led by a dragon, would have been an impressive sight. Yet still, many thought of dragon boats as a fantasy. Finally, in 1997, another discovery was made at Roskilde. A war vessel with a body cut from two mighty trees, which dwarfed any that came before. At 37 metres in length, the Roskilde 6 had been built to awe opponents into submission as much as to carry its crew of close to 100 men into battle. Dating to around 1025, the boat may once have been owned by King Canute, or his great rival Olaf Haraldsson, King of Norway. Longer than many battleships of the later Middle Ages, its discovery proved that the sagas were at least partly true, for this was a ship fit for a king, reminiscent of the Long Serpent owned by Olaf Tryggvason, one of the most famous of all the ships talked of in the sagas. 
Though the Norwegian king, Harald Finehair, may have had some sort of an early dragon boat, as hinted at by Snorri Sturluson, crews of the 9th century seem to have consisted of 50 or 75 men at most. By the 11th century, times had changed. Warships might have carried upwards of 200, each one a small army in its own right. As we shall see, these highly valued boats had names and their own stories behind them, a symbol of royal prowess at the height of the Viking Age. For a hundred years and more from the late 900s, many would be the sea battle engaged in by these boats. Of all the eras of the Viking Age, due to a slightly increased literacy by this time, this is the era we know the most about. An era of warring kings and Viking empires. The Age of the Dragonships. This episode of History Time is sponsored by CuriosityStream, a subscription-based streaming service that offers thousands of documentaries and non-fiction titles from some of the world's best filmmakers, including exclusive originals you can't find anywhere else. The world's first streaming service dedicated entirely to learning, with categories including history, science, nature, technology, society and lifestyle. Just like other streaming services, you can watch CuriosityStream on all of your devices. And best of all, you can get access to all of it for just $2.99 a month. With your first 30 days completely free of charge if you sign up using my link. There's so much to watch on this service that I've honestly been spoiled for choice. Recently, I've been watching Storm Over Europe a four-part series charting the history of the Germanic peoples who inherited Europe from the Roman Empire, as well as loads of other great history documentaries on Rome, ancient history, and more. Head on over to curiositystream.com forward slash history time for unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and non-fiction titles, and get 30 days free. There are links to everything in the description below. Now... Back to the post-Roman twilight. In the mid-970s, according to later saga tradition, a young man arrived at the Danish king Harald Bluetooth's court, claiming to be his son. Harald had other sons, a whole brood of them, in fact, eager and ready to take up his mantle as the most powerful dynast in the kingdom upon his death, just as he had done from his father before him. Yet the newcomer seemed harmless enough, and new soldiers were always welcome, for Denmark in the latter 10th century was built for war. The most powerful of the Scandinavian kingdoms Denmark had the largest population, the best farmland, and was the most unified. Both Sweden and Norway having huge wilderness areas and rival centres of power, each independent in its own right. The boy's mother had allegedly been a servant girl and whilst no particular stigma was attached to illegitimate children in Viking Age Denmark, he was still at a marked disadvantage by not having a second family to call on support from. Yet, nevertheless, in time, he would prove himself a capable and useful young man to have around, for he was Sven Forkbeard and his father's dynasty, having made themselves masters of Denmark and even neighbouring parts of the Scandinavian world, had many enemies. Most of our knowledge of Harald and his family, often known as the Yelling dynasty, due to the monumental rune stones and royal complex found at that site on the Jutland Peninsula, 
comes from near-contemporary German chroniclers such as Adam of Bremen, Widdekind of Corvey, and Tietmar of Merseburg. They lived through these times, though undoubtedly wrote through an outsider Christian lens. Invaluable sources to complement and add context to these writers are the later Icelandic saga traditions, later Danish writers, and of course, archaeology. Back in the 930s, Harald's father, a sea king of disputed origins named Gorm the Old, perhaps hailing from the Danish Isles, seized the chaos of a German invasion from the south to overrun the Jutland Peninsula, claiming the important trading towns there and their lucrative revenues as his own. The largest of these towns, Hedeby, had already been minting its own coins since the 9th century, a rarity in Scandinavia at this time. This monopoly over trade and tax revenues thus allowed Gorm and his descendants to construct huge warships to cement their power, and in time, great wooden fortresses that still dot the landscape today. Arguably the first of this new breed of ships was discovered in 1935 on a Danish island. Though only the ghostly outline remained in the ground, the Ladby ship, complete with dragon-headed prow, is nearly 22 metres long and only 2.9 metres wide, being capable of carrying a large band of warriors to war. Unlike earlier multi-purpose ships for raiding as much as trading, such as the Gokstad ship, Perhaps this was the beginnings of a tradition which would eventually lead to the colossal dragon boats of the next century. Upon succeeding his father in 958, one of Harald Bluetooth's first acts had been to take his power north, seizing control of the Viken region of Norway from the heirs of Harald Finehair, the first king of Norway. He also looked south, sending fleets to aid the fledgling Count of Normandy, Richard the Fearless, in his power struggles against the West Frankish magnates, each as independent as the last. Unlike East Francia, the other descendant of Charlemagne's Carolingian Empire. Unfortunately for Harold, the ruler of East Francia, Otto I, was the most powerful monarch in all of Europe. We can see the effects of German power in the refortification of the Danewerker along Jutland's southern border, and eventually the relocation of the Danish capital from Jelling to Roskilde. Yet, despite all of these monumental efforts, Harald Bluetooth could not stop the Germans from riding north to attack his lands on several occasions. Perhaps it was for this reason, as Adam of Bremen suggests, that he converted to Christianity. Though this may have begun as a ruse, soon enough, Christian insistence on the divine right of kings, and no doubt new trade links with the south, convinced him otherwise. eventually even going so far as to dig up his father and reinter his remains in a Christian burial. By 970, Bluetooth's influence extended yet further when Hakon, son of the murdered Jarl of Laid, Sigurd, killed in a hall burning eight years earlier, returned to claim his birthright. The far northern Norwegian province of Laid in return for his support in overthrowing Harald Greycloak, Bluetooth's former ally. The last surviving son of Eric Bloodaxe and the murderer of Hakon's father. Southern Norway was ceded to Denmark. Parts of the Baltic were also seized at this time, such as the settlement of Volin in modern-day Poland which may be the origin of the fabled Jomsvikings order. We get a rare glimpse into this world when the slightly later travelling Cordoban merchant Al Tartushi speaks of Volin on the Baltic 
as an impressive place, more so than Hedeby. By 974, however, the Germans, now under a new ruler, Otto II, returned to raid over the Daneverka. Bluetooth, along with his ally Hakon, met them there, but could not withstand the army. By 975, Hedeby had fallen. Perhaps under pressure from the Germans, Bluetooth began pushing his new faith upon his subjects, even in Norway too, completely alienating Hakon Jarl in doing so. In June 982, a battle fought on the other side of Europe, on the scorched plains of southern Italy, against the Arabic Emirate of Sicily. A people most Scandinavians scarcely knew existed sent shockwaves all the way to the Arctic Circle. In that year, Otto II, most powerful ruler in all of Christendom and heir to Charlemagne, had been heavily defeated, along with his Lombard allies, by the Kalbid Emir Abul Qasim. The Emir had given his life in the battle, but Otto had been forced to flee by boat, his army destroyed. He died in the next year, a broken man. As soon as the news reached the north, a gigantic Slavic revolt broke out, pushing back Christianization in the region by decades. Of course, the Danes moved quickly too, though it wasn't Harald who capitalized on the Battle of Stilo, but his son, Sven, now every bit the embodiment of a Viking warlord, no doubt leading numerous longboats to war. Within the year, Hedeby was reclaimed, gaining Sven much renown in the process. Of course, the Germans would inevitably retaliate, but that would take time. And when they did so, Sven had made himself known as the man to fight them. And in time, to do away with his father entirely. Much of what we know about Svein Forkbeard comes from the 13th century saga of Olaf Haraldsson, written by Snorri Sturluson. Though put to paper much later than contemporary German writers, Snorri heavily used skaldic poetry, much of which is thought to have dated to only a few years later than the events described. Such as the skald Ari Thorgilson the Wise. Nevertheless, Sven's early years are still shrouded in myth and contradiction. Adam of Bremen, for example, makes much of his paganism, and many stories abound of his raising a pagan alliance alongside his former mentor slash folk hero Palnatok. Though archaeology suggests a different story. Sven, probably being as much a Christian as his father, quickly realising its political necessity. By 986, all of Harald's legitimate sons seemed to have died. Perhaps his massive building operations had led to high taxation, and perhaps his forced Christianising really had alienated the population. But when the Germans again invaded, Though the exact order of events is shrouded in myth, Sven rose up in revolt. Alongside Hakon Jarl of Norway and perhaps Eric the Victorious, King of Sweden. Bluetooth fled to his fortress on the Baltic, a broken man, where he died of his wounds not long after. The way was now clear for the son to rule. Though he now had the issue of two powerful overbearing neighbours in the form of Hakon Jarl and Eric the Victorious. In the 980s, though the exact details, as usual for this time, remain shrouded in legend, Sven is thought to have launched a seaborne attack on Hakon's Norwegian lair, supported by the fabled Joms Vikings, perhaps Danish settlers on the Baltic. After the ensuing battle of Hurongagavar, 
fought in the midst of a howling hailstorm, only half of the Danish fleet made it home. A little later, perhaps in around 990, if the saga traditions are to be believed, it was Sven's turn to weather a Viking invasion of his own. Eric the Victorious, the first historically verifiable King of the Swedes, was on the warpath. Ruler of the people around Lake Malaren in the north of modern-day Sweden, he'd made his name on the centuries-old battlefield against the Geats around the forested southern lakes. And now, in Denmark's weakness, he seems to have smelled an opportunity. Though the invasion was short-lived, perhaps amounting to little more than raiding, Sven, on the search for wealth, would soon engage in Viking raids of his own. We get a unique insight into the ships of this era, perhaps used in sea battles, in a site excavated in 1979 in the harbour at Old Hedderby. At the time, one of the most important trading hubs of Scandinavia. At 30 metres in length, this was undoubtedly a war vessel and dated to around 985. It may have even been owned by Sven Forkbeard. Making sure to secure his southern border by making alliances with the Slavs, Sven married the sister of Duke Bolslav, ruler of the fledgling Polish realm, for they had a common enemy in Imperial Germany. This wife, Geitha, who would soon become known as Gunhild, would eventually be the mother of Knut. His southern border secure, Sven went raiding. Sailing out of the mists of legend and into the contemporary historical records. There is another story, said to have taken place at around the same time as Sven Forkbeard came to power in Denmark. This one takes place on a tiny island chain off the southwestern shores of Britain. One of the smallest inhabited chain of islands to surround those waters. At some point in the past, this may have been a single island peopled by druids and ripe with Arthurian legend. By the 980s, after a decade of renewed Viking raids, many of its people having been carried off into slavery, hermits and holy men called it home. We know it as the Scilly Isles. By the latter 980s, according to the saga tradition, one of those Vikings arrived at that tiny way station, along with a vast fleet of ships, larger than many national armies of that time. He was Olaf Tryggvason. Long ago, he had been a prince of Norway, one of the descendants of Harald Finehair, its first king. Now, he was better known simply as Crowbone, due to his penchant for pagan divination. Having lived an especially hard life as a slave in the Baltic Sea, somewhere in modern-day Estonia, before serving in the Dracaena of the Rus Prince Vladimir, many of whose warriors had once served the great Hakon Jarl, before finally embarking on his own career as commander of his own private army. He'd married in the Baltic and would do so again in Ireland, forging dynastic links in the process. Though England would be where he would make his fortune. And now something about the Scilly Isles intrigued Crowbone. A fervent pagan, Olaf had very much adopted the status of priest-king of his people, known for looking for futures in the bones and entrails of dead animals. Yet, nonetheless, when he met a Christian hermit on that windswept shore, the story goes that he was offered a kingdom 
should he convert. We don't know anything else about that hermit, and though Olaf could sense a change in the winds, he would still have to fight for his kingdom. But he was in the right place to do so. Britain was a place irrevocably changed by the Viking Age. During the 970s, and likely even before, longships manned by Anglo-Danish inhabitants of the Danelaw, under the command of King Edgar the Pacifier, a king who called himself Emperor of Britain, had patrolled English waters against piratical attacks. As far back as Alfred the Great's time, fleets of longships had been built to combat Vikings. Though now, Anglo-Saxon England's prosperity would be its downfall. Court factionalism and a lack of new regions to conquer and thus lands to give to ambitious eldermen led to the fragmenting of society. For the huge number of Scandinavian pirates amassing on all of its borders, this was now easy pickings. On the western side of the island, the descendants of Ivar the Boneless, the Uyamere, had long dominated the seaways. This was pirate country, evidenced by ship graffiti in the 10th and 11th centuries, and vast amounts of swords and hordes all over the seaways. We even have slightly later vessels, such as the Skuldalev, which was made in Ireland. In many areas, a not-quite-yet-Christian place, where ships still meant everything. In a situation not very different from coasts all the way from here to the far side of the Baltic Sea, surely these kings, ruling over spits of land from Cork to Shetland, had some form of dragon ship too, purposely built for war. For they didn't live in a vacuum, and very much engaged in the arms race of the Viking world. Yet, the eastern shores of Britain were where Olaf would make his name. In 980, though we don't know any of their names, after an absence of nearly a century, Vikings came to Southampton and Thanet. This time, independent of wind, they came on dragon boats. Professional pirate companies, trained to systematically strip wealth and take captives for the slave trade. England's Viking Age had begun anew. The city of Southampton had first been built by the Romans as Clausentum. That had been abandoned entirely for Saxon Hamwich in around 700. Then again in the 9th century after Viking raids. Now, for the third time in its history, it would be burned again and remained depopulated until after the Norman conquest in 1066. In 982, Portland was burned and weeks later, London itself attacked. The 980s saw new attacks every single year, and by the time Olaf arrived in British waters, his was just one company amongst many. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records many of these attacks in sorrowful tones, until finally, in 991, we get a single extraordinary account. Olaf came with 93 ships to Folkestone, raided round about it, and went from there to Sandwich, and so from there to Ipswich, and overran all that land, and so to Maldon. The battle fought at Maldon, one of the most famous epic poems in Old English, was a disaster for King Ethelred and his kingdom. On that day, the Vikings, perhaps 2,000 to 5,000 men, were met by Earl Brithnoth, solidifying himself in legend 
by dying in battle alongside the Essex Fjord. By 994, Crowbone is joined by perhaps an unlikely ally as Sven Forkbeard arrives from Denmark to join the chaos. Together with 94 ships between them, they attacked Essex, Kent, Sussex and Hampshire along with launching an ultimately unsuccessful attack on London. After which, they rode across the land together on horseback, destroying and raiding at will. Ultimately, this would be Crowbone's last foray. If the wealth he acquired hadn't been enough before that year, it would be by 995. For in that year, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records his baptism by the Bishop of Winchester, with King Ethelred standing as his godfather, and no doubt benefactor with a large sum of money. In other words, a bribe to finally leave his kingdom. Which he did, for Crowbone had bigger plans. For the first time since being sold into slavery by a rival as a small child, he was going home. News of Olaf's approach probably preceded him, and just as his armada came into anchor off the coast, Hakon Jarl, veteran warlord and priest king, was murdered by his own people. His sons fleeing to take refuge with the new king of the Swedes, Olaf Skotkunung. Tryggvason, using the money pulled out of England, was soon proclaimed king. According to Snorri Sturluson, placing the head of Hakon's murderer on a spike as one of his first acts. If the regional Jarls had hoped Olaf would be a just ruler, they were sorely mistaken, simply replacing one tyrant with another. Though Crowbone professed to be a Christian now, he was Old Testament, brutally massacring scores of nobles who refused to convert and presiding over a reign of terror that extended outwards to the Orkneys and Iceland too. It is at this time that Olaf Crowbone, most famous Viking in the world, now with the resources of a kingdom behind him, according to saga tradition, had the greatest ship the North had ever seen constructed. The ship was both long and broad and high-sided and strongly timbered, the ship was a dragon, built after the one the king had captured in Halogaland. But this ship was far larger, and more carefully put together in all her parts. The king called this ship the Long Serpent, and the other the Short Serpent. The Long Serpent had thirty-four benches for rowers. The head and the arched tail were both gilt, and the bulwarks were as high as in sea-going ships. This ship was the best and most costly ship ever made in Norway. And he wasn't alone either. It seems that every Viking king had a giant ship built. Hakon's son, Jarl Erik, had a ship called the Bearded One built, because it had the carved head of Thor in the prow. though this head was later replaced with a cross. By the year 1000, a reckoning was on the way, and Crowbone and Forkbeard's paths would cross once more. The Ironbeard and the Long Serpent would do battle. After a confrontation in the frosted North Sea, Crowbone leapt to his death. Denmark and Norway were finally unified, but not quite in the way that Crowbone had envisioned. Wary of Germany from earlier in his life, Sven used English priests instead. He combated sea kings by going on his own raids, whilst England remained weak and divided, its Anglo-Danish population now mostly alienated by the king 
relations made worse by massacres such as St. Bryce's Day in 1002, which provided a pretext for Sven to return. After years of chaos, as not just Sven Forkbeard, but a variety of independent fleets set about ravaging the land, Sven finally achieved his goal in 1013, being accepted by the Danelaw as ruler and forcing Ethelred to flee to his family in Normandy, setting up a new capital at Gainsborough and settling in to finally rule over Denmark, England and Norway, the first king in history to do so. By early February 1014, dark omens yet again hung over England. After a reign of just five weeks, the king was dead, and now a roll call of Danish mercenary commanders, Anglo-Saxon warrior lords, and Viking marauders began waging war yet again over the leftovers. Though Svein had already named an heir to his new possession, his son Canute, the ruling council of elders in England, known as the Witan, had other ideas, inviting Ethelred back from his exile in Normandy instead. Though there was still the matter of getting back into his kingdom, let alone his capital. In order to do so, according to one skaldic tradition, the king turned once again to Scandinavian mercenaries to help him reclaim his crown specifically a young Norwegian named Olaf Haraldsson. But there was a problem. Danishmen loyal to Svein and now Canute still held the capital, safely hidden behind the indigofatable barrier that had halted longships there since the early 10th century, much like similar river defences built by Charlemagne and Offa centuries before at the beginning of the Viking Age. It was a low bridge across the river. In that year of 1014, if the saga traditions are to be believed, some sort of confrontation was fought here at London Bridge, with at least one story having Olaf pulling down London Bridge to help restore Ethelred to his kingship, perhaps the origin of the popular English nursery rhyme. The young Canute, meanwhile, his father's army hemorrhaging around him, and his brother Harold now ruling as king in Denmark, as per his father's instructions, had no choice but to leave the kingdom that as far as he was concerned should have been his. Vowing to return, Canute cast off not long after Ethelred was made king again, leaving his brutally disfigured hostages on a Kentish shore scions of powerful English noble families, bereft of their hands, ears and noses. Like Olaf Crowbone before him, Olaf Haraldson, known as the Stout, had probably only been in his teens when he'd first made a name for himself. Like Crowbone, he had the fortune of a royal pedigree, claiming descent from Harald Finehair the first king of Norway. Yet this alone wasn't enough. He had to be a feared warrior too. If the sagas are to be believed, he'd been raiding in the Baltic since his late childhood, forced out of his homeland by the power of Denmark, as well as Machiavellian schemes by other noblemen. Earning renown for himself in the brutal cold woodland of Finnmark, fighting hostile wizards and Finnish bowmen, for reasons long since lost to us today. Like many warrior companies at the time, traversing the seas in search of fortune, Olaf and his men probably arrived in England by around 1010, offering their services as swords for hire. He is said to have participated in the Siege of Canterbury in 1011, under the Viking leader, Thorkel the Tall, another grandson of Gorm the Old, who'd made life difficult for Sven Forkbeard, 
probably acting independently of the Danish crown, before abandoning the Danish cause entirely in preference to direct access to English coin and the service of King Ethelred. A path Olaf would soon also take for himself. In the Scandinavian world of the late 10th century, there was a long-standing precedent for exiled sea kings eventually returning to their homelands to reclaim their kingdoms, or even striking out anew to claim an entirely new one. Scions of royal and noble houses had been doing this for centuries. But by the 900s, we finally get reliable contemporary accounts of their actions. The exiled Norwegian king Eric Bloodaxe being a prime example, repeatedly setting himself up as king in Northumbria before being ousted and returning to the high seas once more, finally meeting his end on a lonely Cumbrian moorland in 954. Many were the Norse-Irish kings who had done the same. The kinsmen Guthfrith, Ragnall and Citric had all done it, along with their sons Olaf Guthfrithson and Olaf Citricson, not to mention Hakon Jarl in Laid, and later his son Eric Hakonson. Yet these had all been provinces or smaller kingdoms. In 1013, Svein Forkbeard had bucked the trend by going straight for the entire kingdom of England a determined invasion not seen since the days of Alfred the Great and the Great Heathen Army. And he pulled it off too, swaying the Anglo-Danes of Eastern England to his cause, as well as the English noblemen at Bath, and then forcing Ethelred to leave. But then Sven had died, and the entire North Sea world he'd spent decades in forging collapsed once again. With the death of a new king came a new beginning, a perfect opportunity for Olaf to return home and restore the kingdom of his forefathers, dominated by Denmark for so long. No doubt receiving a large payment from Ethelred for his services, Olaf left England, though at first he seems to have gone south, perhaps not deeming his winnings enough to pay for his new kingdom perhaps heading south to raid in Iberia for a time, and according to the sagas, being baptised in Normandy along the way. Upon returning home, the Norwegian nobility had little choice to accept Olaf as their new king. Receiving the submission of the petty lords in 1015, before defeating Hakon's son Sven in 1016 at the Battle of Nessjar, the Kingdom of Norway had been born anew. Of course, as befitted a Scandinavian king, Olaf had a great dragon boat built called the Bison, with a great bull's head adorned with gold in the stem and a tail at the stern. He also had a ship built called the Carl's Head. On the bow, a king's head was carved out, and he himself had carved it. This head was used long after in Norway, on ships which kings steered themselves. It would be a while yet before these boats went out to war. For now, there was much work to be done at home. But what of the other Jarl of Laid, Eric? He too was busy, for a great mustering was taking place to the south. Like any good emperor, Svein Forkbeard had a number of sons, and he'd lived long enough to see at least one of them follow in his footsteps, becoming a Viking warlord. When Svein died, however, the young Canute found himself in a particularly precarious situation. He'd been promised England, whereas his brother Harold took Denmark. He couldn't afford to challenge his brother without a kingdom behind him there was only one path for Canute to take. He'd have to reconquer the kingdom. Raising the largest fleet the Viking world had ever yet seen to do so, 
with the real muscle provided by Thorkel the Tall and Jarl Eric Hakonsen, both veteran leaders of men with large private armies who stood to benefit immensely from a successful campaign. Even at this young age, Canute must have been an impressive figure to secure the loyalty of these men. Tietmar of Merseburg says Canute had 340 ships when he finally sailed back to England, each manned by 80 men. Perhaps an exaggeration, yet still larger than most other forces of the day. They weren't just Danes either. Norwegians, Swedes, Bolts, Poles and Wends all marched in his ranks, alongside men from the Scottish Isles and Ireland. Perhaps the largest Viking army ever assembled. After yet another war, which included a spirited English fight back under Ethelred's son Edmund Ironside, this new great army conquered England entirely, carving it up between themselves, with Thorkel getting East Anglia and Eric Northumbria. Yet from the beginning, Canute made it known that if possible, he would work with the English, not against them. The time for fighting was over, even marrying Ethelred's widow, Emma of Normandy. Peace weaver of the powerful Norman dynasty ruling across the Channel, also descended from Scandinavians. And forging alliances with English dynasts such as Godwin of Wessex and Leofwine of Mercia. Emma's alienated sons by Ethelred, meanwhile, Edward and Alfred entered their own lengthy exiles at the Norman court, spending most of their lives there. We will hear from Edward again. In 1018, further good news came for Canute as his brother Harold conveniently died, allowing Canute to take the Danish throne as well. Yet, it wasn't just England and Denmark that would come under Canute's sway. The Irish Sea and Scottish Islands had been tinged with Norsemen for centuries, having long forged unique Norse-scale identities in Ireland, the Isle of Man and even Strathclyde. Royal burials are found all over this region, many of them interred in boats, suggesting long-held pagan beliefs here. Grave goods and hoards show items from all over continental Europe, including silver from as far away as Central Asia, and expensive state-of-the-art Frankish swords, worth considerably more than most traders would make in their entire lives. Even places we don't usually think of as Scandinavian, such as Galloway, had adapted and changed by this point, even utilising their own longships. In time, evidence suggests the majority of these power brokers came to accept Canute as some sort of an overlord. No Scandinavian ruler before or after would achieve such a feat, and it was probably on dragon-headed boats such as the Roskilde Six that he achieved it. For, according to the saga tradition, Canute's dragon was the largest ever constructed and he had a whole fleet of similar ships. Canute's reign was the absolute pinnacle of Scandinavian power. By this time, the takeover and superseding of the Carolingian North Sea trade system was complete, with the cities of York, Dublin and Hedeby having become the new places to be. Yet these were mostly Christian towns now allowing Englishmen, Germans and Irish to take part too. Though this trade system utilised a very different form of boat than that which had come before, allowing much more wide-reaching trade missions, these boats, known as canars, regularly traversed the North Sea, heading deep into the Atlantic for the first time. This example found at Hedeby could carry 60 tonnes of cargo, we will hear more about these next time.
By 1025, treasury brimming with riches, the island of Britain subjugated, Canute was ready for war again, turning his sights on Norway. Of course, Norway already had a king, but in truth for Olaf, the clock had been ticking for 10 years. Canute now had the resources of all England and Denmark to call from. Heading out into the North Sea, Canute's dragon and Olaf's bison would do battle. Of course, seeing Olaf once more forced into exile on the high seas. Just as Scandinavians had long adapted to their surroundings and merged with local cultures wherever they went, Canute would attempt to emulate the greatest of all English kings, Athelstan, and his hero too, greatest of all European monarchs, Charlemagne. To his warriors, Canute was still a Viking warlord, but to his Christian subjects, he was Emperor of the North. Charlemagne reborn. In 1027, in the crowning achievement of his reign, only a decade since he'd claimed England by the sword, Canute rode south to Rome in a great ceremony alongside the German king and Holy Roman Emperor Conrad. Their predecessors had been enemies for centuries, but Conrad and Canute weren't even just allies. They seem to have been good friends, eventually bringing their houses together in marriage. In such a short period of time, the world had changed irrevocably. This was a very different ruler to his father. Though according to skaldic tradition, he'd been born on a longboat on the frosted northern seas. He was now a European monarch with modern sensibilities. Yet, the Viking Age wasn't over yet, not by a long shot. The wars and power struggles that followed the collapse of Canute's North Sea Empire would rage on for decades. Their fallout would define the European world for centuries to come. Thank you for watching. History Time is a one-man team run by me, Pete Kelly. If you want to see me visiting ancient cities, medieval citadels, megalithic monuments, Iron Age hill forts, and so much more, then subscribe to my other channel by that same name. I'll also be making book reviews, video essays, and anything else that doesn't quite fit in to History Time. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you on the next one.